But I invite you now to turn to the book of Acts, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 21. We continue our study. It's been a while since we've been in this book, a number of weeks since before the retreat, Acts chapter 21. Our reading will begin at verse 27. We will continue on through verse 39 of Acts chapter 21. Fairly long passage today in which we will cover chapter 22 as we look into the Word of God. Acts chapter 21, verse 27. Luke writes the following. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus and the Ephesian in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was provoked. And the people rushed together, taking hold of Paul. They dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once, he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a city of no insignificant city, citizen of a no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study this morning. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for your eternal word. We are so very blessed, O God, to read it, to behold it, to be spoken to from it. And we pray, God, may you open the eyes of our heart, grant to us understanding and illumine our minds, and may we see great and mighty things from thy precious word. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark Batterson tells of an individual in his book entitled Chase the Lion about an account in November 1964 that happened out in the Belgian Congo. 
There was a missionary there. His name was J.W. Tucker. J.W. Tucker was serving there, and he knew of the risk that was there, but he stayed where God had placed him because there was a great need. Out in the Belgian Congo in November, there was anarchy that had broken out. And one day, there was a mob that came, a mob of Congolese rebels. They tied his hands behind his back. They attacked him with sticks and clubs and fists and broken bottles, and they killed him. They took his body, they threw it into the back of a pickup truck, they drove good distance, and then along with 60 other Christian compatriots, they threw him and all 60 in the, into the Bomokande River, which was crocodile-infested and is now a part of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. In the grand scheme of things, God has never promised us that we would have a life that we would live happily ever after only. But he did promise that we would have so much more happily forever after. It was that type of perspective that he had when he risked his life to go and bring the gospel to that particular area of the world. He wasn't afraid of death because he had already died to himself. It wasn't an uncalculated risk. It wasn't a foolhardy decision on his part to stay in Congo during a civil war. He had counted the cost as his missionary friend, Morris Plotz, who tried to convince him to go or not to go originally to the Congo, and he said to him, if you go in, you won't come out. Tucker said, quote, God didn't tell me I had to come out. He only told me I had to go in. God never told me I had to come out. He only told me I had to go in. That was the attitude of the perspective and the perspective of the Apostle Paul as he entered into Jerusalem. This is at the end of his third missionary journey. He had gone, and as we review what has happened, he wasn't promised a nice life. He wasn't going to Jerusalem in order to collect Social Security or have his pension. He wasn't going in order to have a nice, quiet, easy life at the end of his life. He was going, it says in Acts 20, verse 22, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, he says not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life as of any account as dear to myself, but that I might finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel, of the grace of God. That was what he endeavored to do to be faithful as he entered into Jerusalem. And we come to this passage as after he is stopped by Miletus in chapter 20, and he gave given his, his very famous speech, the longest recorded speech in the, in, by Luke of the Apostle Paul, a long farewell to the Ephesian elders who had come, and he encouraged them by his own example, and he warned them of, of those who would come into the church and attempt to infiltrate the church and not spare the sheep, that they were to be very, very watchful. 
but that he was going to Jerusalem, and all he knew was that bonds and afflictions would await him there. He was not deterred by the suffering that he would have because his desire was to follow the Lord Jesus in obedience to the Spirit of God. Even in Acts 21, as he leaves Miletus and Agus the prophet predicted his bondage that he would be handed over to the Gentiles by the Jews, Paul continued on. And when he had arrived in Jerusalem in Acts 21:17, he was well received by the church. Recall the last time we looked at the book of Acts, he entered into Jerusalem, he met the elders of the church who had now taken over because the apostles had moved on to missionary work and other responsibilities, and James was there, a very pious man, well known among the Jews for his piety, and here he gave a missions report at the beginning of the book of Acts. While he was there, some had spread the news, this rumor that Paul, in verse 21, teaching all the Jews who were among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. They had all of these false accusations, all of the things that were as an offense to the Jews. Well, what were they to do? This was a problem. Because all of these things had spread, all of these rumors, etc., had spread. And the elders of the church said to Paul, Well, Paul, there are these four men who had taken a Nazarite vow. Why don't you go and have your ceremonial cleansing? Likely because he had traveled in Gentile lands and he'd come on. Why don't you pay for these four men as they have their ceremony? A very expensive payment. And then what would happen is that everyone will see. You're not against the customs. You're not against the law. You're not telling people they shouldn't follow Moses. And so Paul complied. Verse 26, Paul took the men. The next day, purifying himself along with all of them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each of them. In other words, following the customs, the laws, the practices of a particular culture is not necessarily wrong. Understanding that the Jews, in this case, did not believe you had to do these things in order to be saved, but their conscience bound them to follow these things. They believed that these things would please God, even as believers. They believed that they were still needing to follow them, and it would please God if they did. And so Paul compromised in the fact that he desired not to cause division within the church. In the spirit of 1 Corinthians 9.20, it says, To the Jew I became as a Jew, so that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. I realize that's written evangelistically. But still, as they come out as young believers, there were vestiges of the things that they held fast still to, and not wanting to cause division, he put aside his personal freedoms such that they would not become a barrier to winning the unsaved to Christ or winning the heart of the younger believers who were still tied to the law. And that brings us to today's text. That brings us to today's text of where we are at now because now that the church in Jerusalem is satisfied, Paul now faces accusations and attacks from the Jews who had come from Asia outside of the church. They'd come to Jerusalem to which he then gives an appeal and a defense. 
And it says there in verse 27, when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up the crowd and laid hands on him. The first section of this particular text relates to the accusation that they leveled against Paul. And in our lives, there will be times in which accusations come about us because we are Christians, because we have placed our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus and turned from our sin. It is such that people will accuse us, sometimes wrongly, and it doesn't feel good. But here is what Paul does to answer those accusations as we look through this text. The accusations come from these Jews. Verse 27, upon seeing him in the temple, there he is in the temple, the days of purification he was doing, they're about to come to an end, and they accuse him of a number of things. Men of Israel, come to our aid, they cry out. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. And besides, he has brought even Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now, it's not surprising these Jews had come after him. They had dogged him from city after city after city. They would travel far. They would hear that he's in the city a ways away. They would hear that Paul is in Centralia, and they would go from here just to rile up the Jews, accusing him, driving him out, stoning him, plotting to kill him because he was preaching Christ as the Messiah. And here they accuse him of four particular things, four particular things. First, of opposing the Jews. He was accused of being anti-Jew. And that was a great offense. Jews were a very proud people. In many cultures, they're very proud people. But as God's chosen people, they held a high view of themselves and a low view of everyone else There was national pride, ethnic pride, religious pride, all and everything. To be the worst Jew was even better than being the best Gentile. But Paul was not speaking against the Jews. He loved his own people deeply. Romans 9 tells us that. He pleads and writes and he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He wished, if possible, that maybe he could be accursed, separated from Christ, such that his people might come to a saving knowledge of who Jesus was. His desire that they would come to the Savior was that great, and he loved his people. Which condemnation perhaps might come upon himself if he could trade. He loved them deeply. He was not anti-Jew. But the second thing they leveled at him was that he was anti-law. He was against the laws. Now here at the Feast of Pentecost, In Jerusalem, this was a, for the opponents, a strategic place by which they could accuse him of that particular thing. It used to be a celebration of the first fruits before Paul's time, but in Paul's time, it had changed. It had become a celebration of the giving of the law of Moses at Mount Sinai. And so people came to the Feast of Pentecost. These Jews had come from out of town to celebrate the feast, to celebrate the giving of the law. 
And of all places and all feasts to be accused of being anti-law, if you wanted to make an enemy of somebody, this is where you would pose that accusation. But Paul had just paid for these four individuals to complete their Nazarite vows. He willingly went through the ritual cleansing. He certainly wasn't anti-law. They accused him thirdly, though, not only of being anti-Jew, anti-law, but also anti-temple. This is what Jesus was accused of in Mark 14. This is what Stephen was accused of in Acts chapter 6. The people revered the temple and sometimes even thought of the temple as a euphemism for God himself. But he himself just came and was in the temple with the purification rites. A false accusation there as well. And he was accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple, defiling it fourthly. Because Trophimus was seen with him, they assumed he had brought him in. Gentiles were allowed in the outer court of the area there, but Gentiles could not go beyond the outer court. In fact, if they went any further, there was a severe penalty. There were signs that were posted that no Gentile should come past a particular boundary. The signs were in Greek and Latin saying if you come past this particular boundary, the penalty would be the penalty of death to you. In fact, as we remember, the Jews weren't allowed to put people to death with the exception of this one particular law. Even if the person was a Roman soldier who crossed over that line, they were allowed by Rome to put him to death. And so if Paul had brought Trophimus into the temple, he would have faced the death penalty. You know, it's quite obvious that he didn't do so. They made that assumption simply because they saw Trophimus with him. And the question would be, why didn't they kill him at that point in time if they had really seen him? But as you know, all these accusations and innuendos and false characterizations, characterizations would spread like a forest fire in dry conditions as people here in the text rushed him, they dragged him out of the temple, and they closed the door behind him. Now, in this particular passage as a sidebar, some have tried to use this particular passage to show that the prophecy that Agabus had given earlier had only partially come true. And they come from a viewpoint in which they believe there are modern-day prophets today. They will say, look, Paul wasn't bound. It doesn't say that specifically. And they use this particular passage of text to justify fallible New Testament prophets. In other words, there are people today who believe not only in the gift of prophecy, but these prophets give erroneous prophecies from time to time. Unlike the Old Testament prophets, they say, who were bound by the penalty of death if they were to get a prophecy wrong, in the Old Testament they had to get it 100% correct, they argue that the New Testament prophets are not the same. They argue that New Testament prophecy are not held to the same standard. Rather, the New Testament prophets are like those who have a batting average. You get better as you practice more, and this would be the go-to soul passage that they would rely on as an example of one that had a prophecy that was not altogether correct. And they would take this particular passage. Well, how do you address that from the text? For they would say, well, look, 
doesn't specifically say that he was bound, which was what Agabus said as he tied a belt around his own body. Well, what the answer would be is that not everything is specifically nor necessarily spelled out for us, but we can infer, we can infer by strong implication that when they laid hands on him and they dragged him out of the temple, no one believes that he went willingly. It would be more subject to think, well, likely he was bound. Likely they must have restrained him. It's not like he decided he was going to go and get beat up with them. No, they're right. The Bible doesn't specifically say that. But we're inclined, we're inclined to give Agabus the benefit of the doubt. Unless, of course, it says that he wasn't bound, which it doesn't say. But rather than rest on this one and only example to reject the standard, and now people will say, oh gosh, you know, so-and-so gave a prophecy. It wasn't right this time, but he's right most of the time. They used this particular passage to justify that. But what is implied and strongly implied and inferred by the, what, what has happened here, that he was handed over to the Romans, can be understood from the text itself. The Jews had accused him of all of these things, of opposing the Jews, of preaching against the temple, of preaching against them, bringing Greeks into the temple, defiling it, preaching against the law, none of which were true. And sometimes you and I, we may face accusations as well that are not true. Accusations against our testimony, accusations against who we are. But secondly, they attacked him. They attacked him. Not only were their words spoken, but all the city was provoked, verse 30. And the people rushed together, taking hold of Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. They dragged him out of the temple. The doors were closed. And when they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander. The Roman cohort and all Jerusalem was in confusion. And he took along some soldiers and centurions. All of this, all of this incited the crowd to mob vigilantism. Verse 31 says they sought to kill him. Verse 32 says they were going to be, or they were beating him. And all of this ruckus going on attracted the attention of the Romans. The Romans had a fort not far from where they were, Fort Antonio. And that fort overlooks the temple grounds. And so they could easily see what was happening there in the temple grounds. If there was any sort of civil unrest, if there was any sort of rebelliousness, the Romans would be quick to respond because they hated civil unrest. They hated any type of potential insurgency against Rome, and they were quick to stamp it out. So the Romans heard there was some sort of commotion, a big commotion, in the temple grounds. And so here, this Roman cohort, someone who commanded a thousand men, it says centurions were taken, so we might assume maybe a few hundred or soldiers or whatnot. And Luke tells us that his name was Claudius Lysias. He was a ranking Roman official in Jerusalem when the governor was not in the city. And he quickly took some soldiers, he went down to quell, and he saved Paul's life. There was such a frenzy that he couldn't determine what was happening, and the mob was so violent that at one point they had to carry Paul out as they continued to follow the Roman soldiers, saying, away with him. Another phrase meaning, kill him. Kill him. What a scene. Mob violence for what they believed was blasphemy. That still happens today. 
2012, there was a little girl named Rimsha Mashi. She's a little girl whose family lives in Pakistan, Christian family. Her and her mother were jailed after hundreds of a hundred Muslim protesters had surrounded the police station because they had accused her of violating Pakistan's blasphemy law. A local cleric had heard that there was this little girl, 11 years old, who was seen holding a page that was burnt, a page of a religious book called the Nurani Qaeda, a religious textbook that was used to teach children the Quran. Her and her family are a part of what this, uh, a, the profession, a family of sweepers. Because in Pakistan, what they would do, they would say that Christians are qualified for sanitation work. So they would sweep the streets. They would sweep the garbage up. Work which was shunned, would be shunned today by Muslims. But common among those who are poor Christians, those and her family, they lived in the slum area of Islamabad. And one neighbor had said that, well, they had seen her. One person said that they had seen her holding this burned piece of paper. And they told the local cleric, and the cleric began to condemn her for desecrating their book. Someone said that she might have simply swept it up in the trash pile she was collecting. But it's not unusual for a local mosque in Pakistan to incite violence such as that, even when they consider someone having, con- having committed some sort of blasphemy. Not long before that incident, in fact, the police were interrogating someone in Pakistan, a suspect who was suspected of blasphemy, and a mob came, and they seized the man, they beat him to death, and they burned his body outside of the police station. Before that, there was another mob incident that happened a month before that, only to be beaten back by police, accused of blasphemy and danger for the rest of their lives. That little girl and that mother, they can't return to where they lived because their lives would be in danger. Just like that, this angry mob of Jews were incited because they believed that Paul had committed blasphemy, speaking against the temple, against the law, against them, desecrating the temple. They seized him, dragged him out. And so he faced the accusations, he faced the attack. And what did he do? He made an appeal on his way to the barracks. As Paul was about to be brought to the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And Commander was surprised because he could speak Greek. He made his appeal to the Roman commander. The Roman commander, realizing he knew Greek, realized that this was not the man, the Egyptian, who had come and stirred up a revolt before. Paul then identified himself as a Jew. Not only just a Jew, but he had every, so he had every right to be in the temple. But he had come from Tarsus in Cilicia. And Cilicia was a very very educated area, had a university there that rivaled the teaching of Athens and Alexandria, the scholarship that they had in those two well-known cities. So Paul was not only a Jew, but he was an educated Jew from a city that was where he probably learned his Greek. And in utter demonstration, you see, of God's grace, what does Paul do? He gets up 
And in the next section, he carefully tells his testimony in full color detail to the mob. You see, when the Romans had come, he was already being beaten and they wanted to kill him. He's probably bruised. Who knows if he had any broken bones, a fat lip, or whatever it was. And here he stands up on the stairs. The text tells us everyone quiets down as he speaks to them in Hebrew. He is not self-interested in his own self. He's not going to say, I'm sorry for offending you. I'm going to pack my bags and leave town. No, he comes here and he tells them the same message that has incited the violence against him time and time again in every single city he has gone to where he goes into the city and he visits the local synagogue and he tells them the message that Jesus is the Messiah that he saved me and he can save you too. And he's commissioned me to be a proclaimer of who he was. Now, if you're talking to some church growth specialist, they'd probably say, well, Paul, your approach is all wrong. Every time you go to the synagogue, you say the same thing. They beat you up. They toss you out. They try to kill you. Maybe you ought to try a different methodology. How about throwing a festival to Abraham and you'll get all of these Jews? No. Paul wanted to tell them the message of who Jesus was. And he wasn't rude about it. He wasn't belligerent about it. He wasn't proud or arrogant. He was simply bold to tell them what they needed to hear. And that's a lesson for us as well. Time and time again, we might have shared the gospel, and time and time again, maybe you have had nothing but a negative response. You've tried to be kind. You've tried to be nice about things. But now, having been rejected, it brings fear into your heart. Nobody likes that. Or maybe you've never, ever, or rarely, if ever, share the gospel because you're gripped by fear. You're gripped by fear. You don't want people to be offended. You're always asking that question, I don't want to offend them. I don't want to offend them. I don't want to make them antagonistic towards me. Look, the gospel itself is an offense against the sinful, rebellious soul. So however you share it, if you share the clear message of the gospel that sinners need a savior, it will offend. Maybe not offend by the way we come across, but the message of the gospel is that offense To one who rails against God with his fist in the air, desiring my way rather than God's way. Don't cower and hide, but see the Apostle Paul as he goes up and he shares the testimony of what Jesus has done in his life. You'll have that opportunity, you have that opportunity, and here the opportunity came to him. The Romans gave him the platform He is not going to sit down and be quiet. No, all of these Jews, what a huge crowd that he has. And his testimony is laid out here in chapter 22, verse 1 to 21. And he doesn't talk about, he doesn't talk about how he started coming to church or how long he's been a Christian. He talks about how he came to know Jesus and the gospel in his defense. Verse 1 of 22. Brethren and fathers, he says, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, 
I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our father, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received the letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. Now notice how he comes across with his testimony here. He presents all of the things that he would have thought were meritorious. He begins his testimony by all of the things that a Jew would be proud of. He was born a Jew. Check, a privileged class. He was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Check, a city very educated. He was brought up in Jerusalem. Check, a native of the city of Zion. Educated under Gamaliel. Check, a student of a premier rabbi. Strictly according to the law. Check, a law keeper to the nth degree. Fastidious about the law. Six, being zealous for God. Check. The Jews saw zeal for God as a supreme religious virtue. Paul was zealous for the law as a Pharisee. He was that who was passionate about what he believed and followed it to the T as the book of Philippians says. If you wanted to show your zeal, if you wanted to win converts, then what do you do? Well, you do the next thing. A persecutor of the church. Check. You see, it's one thing to dialogue and to argue and to win somebody else, but if you wanted to be a Jew that stood head and tails above all the other Jews, you would put the opposition down. You would persecute the church. They would persecute, put them to death, jail them. Check. Eight. Supported by the high priest, check, authority backed, and by the council. And friends, things people can easily see, a whole list of checks that they have done, things that others would be proud of, all of these accomplishments which they would consider in their moral bank account before God. I've been a great person. I haven't committed any crime that was major. I am in God's good favor. Look how educated and how nice place I have. Look at all that God has given to me. I must be okay. Or even as Christians, we take stock of our lives and we have these little things that we consider in God's favor. We perhaps look upon others in a way that is, hmm, not so good, not so godly. A huge problem. That's how Paul begins his testimony. All of these things that he had considered gain. But God confronts his sin. But it happened in verse 6, as I was on my way, approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell on the ground, heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. The very thing that Paul thought was heads above other Jews, the thing that he believed was pleasing to God was odious in his sight. The issue of sin God confronted him of. The persecution of the Savior, 
the persecution of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is part and parcel of our testimony that is so very important. What we thought was good, but God confronted us with our own sin, the sin of our own pride. And the presentation, thirdly, of the Savior. The presentation of the Savior. And of course, there were some who heard the voice, but they didn't understand. They saw the light or whatever it was, some witnesses. And he says, what shall I do, Lord? The Lord said to me, get up and go into Damascus. And there you will find, there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. And there he met a man named Ananias. A devout man, standard of the law, verse 12, spoken well by all the Jews, credibility in his testimony. Brother Paul, Saul, receive your sight. Then he tells him in verse 14, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. He presented in his testimony what he thought was meritorious before God, but it was God who confronted him with his sin, the persecution of the Savior and the presentation of the Savior. And now he comes to his commission of what he was to do, that he was to be one who would proclaim the righteous one, the one that he saw and heard from that he might be a witness to him, to all men, for what he had seen and heard. Paul came to know Christ. And if anything would rile up the Jews against their beliefs, it would be that the one that they crucified was the righteous Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the sidebar here with verse 16. Some have looked at verse 16, and they've said, Look, verse 16, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Those that believe in what is called baptismal regeneration would take this verse, along with Acts chapter 2, verse 38, where Paul says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And they would say, look, you need to be baptized in order to be saved. Technically, it doesn't say that. When you look at the phrase, wash away your sins, as one commentator notes, it must be connected with calling on his name, since connecting it with be baptized leaves the participle calling without an antecedent. So a literal translation of the verse would read, arise, get yourself baptized, and your sins washed away having called on his name. That's what it would read. Both imperatives reflect the reality that Paul had already called on the Lord's name. That is the act that saves. Baptism and the washing away of sins follow. And so Paul continues his testimony after saying, these are all the things I thought God would be pleased of, but God confronted me on the road to Damascus in which Jesus appeared to me and confronted me with my sin and told me of who he was and commissioned me to be one who would make testimony of who he was. God tells him, make haste, get out of Jerusalem. Get out of Jerusalem. Verse 21, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. That's his testimony. The testimony that he would give to this massive mob that had come 
Paul states his own merits, but all of that was worthless. In God's sight, he needed to deal with his sin and then embrace the Savior in calling upon him, and God sends him to the Gentiles. You know, one of the most practical ways of sharing the gospel is through your own testimony. When you tell about what God has done in your life, how God came and God saved you, how God rescued you from the penalty of your own sin, how you were wayward and how people need to know the Lord. And in your testimony, you share the gospel of what you understood about who Jesus is and what he has done. And because of what he has done, what we need to do and what we're to do, who we are, we're called to be bold. We're called to be faithful. We're called to call people as witnesses of the Savior to tell of the glorious salvation that we have. We began, I told you the story about J.W. Tucker, who had risked everything, and it seemed like, well, maybe he had thrown away his life. After all, he was killed soon afterwards there. But he seemingly, on the surface, had nothing to show for it. It wasn't until 30 years later that a friend of his His name was John Weidman. He went to that country. It was now known today by the name of Zaire. And that river, the Bomokande River, still flows through the middle of the country. It also flows through this tribe. This tribe is, is called the Mangbeto tribe. It's a tribe that is virtually without the gospel. So during the Civil War in Back in the 60s, the king of the Mangbeto tribe became distressed because of all the violence that was going on, and so he asked the government in Kinshana to help, to help because of all of the unrest that was there. And so the central government responded by sending a man, and this man's name was Brigadier. Brigadier, he was a well-known policeman. He was of a strong stature, and his reputation was very good. And another thing about Brigadier was that he was a Christian. He was a Christian that had heard the gospel from Tucker. Brigadier, he wanted to reach this tribe, this Mangbeto tribe, which that river ran through, because he believed that was the only way that they would ever have peace. But he was a relatively new Christian. He was a young Christian, and he did his best to witness, but there was a barrier. They wouldn't respond There was virtually no response to his testimony of who Jesus was. And then he heard one day that there was a tradition. The Mangbetos had a tradition that said, quote, If the blood of any man flows in the Bomokande River, you must listen to his message, unquote. It had been with the Mangbetos from time and time as far as they could remember. And so the brigadier called for the king and called for the village elders, and they gathered in full assembly, and he told them, quote, some time ago a man was killed and his body was thrown into your Bomokande River. The crocodiles in the river ate him up. His blood flowed in your river. 
But before he died, he left me with a message. Quote, the message concerns God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to this world to save sinners, save people. He died for the sins of the world. He died for my sins. I received this message, and it changed my life, unquote. Spirit of God worked in the hearts of the people, and they began to cry out to God, and many were converted. And since that day, thousands of Hmong Bedos have come to Christ, and dozens of churches have opened up along that river, all because of John Tucker, who chose to stay, not knowing what would happen to him there, but he chose to stay, and he willingly suffered, being beat up, thrown into the back of a pickup truck, killed, thrown into a river. Whether in life or death, we are to be the ones who testify boldly, just as Paul would, in front of that mob of who Jesus is and what he has done, that they might hear the good news of salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks. For we are ambassadors, Lord, pleading with people, as 2 Corinthians 5 would tell us. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled. So, Father, we pray, may we be faithful ambassadors, faithful witnesses, bold. Help us, O oh Father, not to be afraid. Help us, O oh Father, not to cower in fear. Help us, O oh Father, to be willing to suffer for your name's sake, for your Son suffered that we might have life. In Jesus' name, amen.